0: Hi everyone and welcome to this webinar. I hope you're all staying safe out there and coping in this um, strange world we find ourselves in. And at the moment infection control is a very topical subject um, and I think we'll stay with us as a very topical subject for quite a long time now. So we're happy at RCBS Knowledge to bring you um, part two of our webinar series on infection control, which is about organisms of concern and modes of transmission. So who are RCVS Knowledge then? Well, RCVS Knowledge, we're a charity, we're a separate organisation to RCVS. Our mission is to advance the quality of veterinary care um, for the benefit of animals, obviously, and for the benefit of the public and society. And we do this by championing the use of evidence-based medicine. Also, um, the area that I'm involved in in RCVS Knowledge is inspiring a culture of quality improvement, continuous quality improvement in practice. And we have lots of um, lovely free resources available on our website, um, quality improvement tools, um, courses on things like clinical audit and and, um, significant event audit and writing guidelines that which if any of you'd like to have a look on there. Um, But at the moment we're um, doing quite a lot on the subject of infection control. So we're going to talk, um, or Tim is going to talk to you today about infection control, about organisms of concern and modes of transport. We do have um, webinar one in this series was about COVID, about um, infection control for COVID. So those of you are interested specifically in that, please have a look at that webinar. It's there on the RCVS Knowledge website. This is the second one about organisms of concern and modes of transport. We will have another one on uh, biosecurity and implementing biosecurity and practice and having um, practice cleaning protocols and people responsible for infection control and lots of practical tips. We'll talk about auditing infection control and we'll talk about disinfectants that you can use. So we're going to have a series of five webinars, which I hope you'll find interesting. And this is the... Um, linked to the Infection Control and Biosecurity during COVID-19 webinar that Tim also did along with Alan Radford from Liverpool and I chaired that one too. But the one we're going to do today on organisms of concern and modes of transport, I think is really, really relevant. So today's webinar on infection control and biosecurity is about organisms of concern and modes of transport this is really, really important. It's, um, it's, it's know your enemy. If you don't understand about the organism that you're dealing with, how do you know what's going to be the best mechanisms for controlling infections and for infection control in the practice? So I'm going to hand over to Tim in just a minute. We're very lucky to have um, Tim Nuttall again to talk to us. Tim is an RCVS recognized specialist in veterinary dermatology and head of the dermatology service at University of Edinburgh. He has particular interest in antimicrobial stewardship and infection control. He's worked with the Bella Moss Foundation, as have, as have I. He's worked with the Scottish Veterinary Antimicrobial Stewardship Group, of in our CVS Knowledge, and others to develop policies and guidelines. Tim, like all of us, is working from home and learning what his two cats get up to all day. So over to you, Tim.
1: Thank you, Pam, for that uh, very kind introduction and um, thank you everyone for uh, listening into to this webinar. So this is uh, part two in the series of infection control and biosecurity that RCVS Knowledge uh, have organized. Uh, the first one covered um, the immediate uh, alterations to um, um, infection control and biosecurity during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, but standard uh, the standard need for infection control and biosecurity um, has not gone away Um, and so uh, this uh, webinar and the remaining ones in this series will just go through the standard approaches uh, and advice um, to allow practices to stay on top of infection control and avoid nosocomial hospital acquired infections Um, and this one Uh, In this one, we're going to look at some of the emerging microorganisms uh, of concern, um, either because they're becoming um, established in veterinary hospitals and can cause serious infections, um, or they're zoonotic and or they might be um, challenging to treat. Um, And then we'll go through um, where these can be acquired from. Um, and then hopefully this information will allow you to think about the risks that you have in your own practice or type of work that you're involved with um, and the sorts of cases that you see within your practice or um, farms, rescue centers, uh, and so on that you uh, may be involved with in helping to manage uh, or advise, and then that will help you to make best use of the more specific information on biosecurity, infection control, uh, cleaning products, um, and clinical audit um, that is coming up in the uh, remaining uh, webinars in this series, but then also um, make best use of the uh, advisory uh, or or the information that's been put on the RCVS Knowledge um, website for advice. Uh, And again, you're welcome to uh, send questions into our CVS knowledge if you've got any um, questions about any issues that this webinar raises and we'll do our best to answer those as quickly as we can. So to start off with, we're just going to talk a little bit about the potential sources of infection. And and the source of infection is anything that allows the organism to to come into contact with the susceptible individual. But it's really important to realize that 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 doesn't imply uh, that they will always become colonized or infected as a result of that, because that will depend on the infectious ability Uh, of of the organism, Um, and these vary widely uh, in in their ability to do that, but also on the uh, immune status, um, uh, both innate immunity such as physical barriers, um, uh, as well as the adaptive uh, immune status uh, of the potential host. And the um, most obvious uh, potential source is the actual natural habitat of the of the organism. And that could be uh, the environment for, for some of these. So for example, uh, some of the fungi, and uh, mycobacteria that we see in, um, in soil environments, but it could be uh, an animal that's infected with the disease. So for example, this little kitten here with Khaleesi virus and less commonly, uh, it could be a human infected with the disease that is um, a a reverse zoonosis, and and, uh, that's much less common, but an example might be um, uh, Mycobacterium tuberculosis in in an infected household. Um, And then we um, also have to consider the um, routes of indirect um, uh, exposure to the source of infection. Uh, And that's where the uh, infectious organism can form a reservoir outside of its natural habitat. Uh, And these can be on inanimate objects where they act as fomites, such as the door handle here. Um, But we can also see uh, animate reservoirs. uh, And again, animals may become asymptomatic, um, uh, mechanically colonized or contaminated with an organism without actually being able to infect them, um, and then can act as a fomite for that. And an example might be, contamination with dermatophyte spores from the the environment without actual infection. But we may also see asymptomatic carriage where the organism establishes on an animal, is able to reproduce and then is able uh, able to spread from there. And an example of that, uh, again, might be uh, an animal that's become asymptomatically colonized with MRSA where it's now become established as part of its natural microbiome. Now, um, when we're talking about uh, infections, really we're talking uh, about transmissible uh, disease. This is, the, this is the concern about infection control. And this implies that it can move from animal to animal uh, or from animal to person. Um, again, most of the time we're considering horizontal spread, but in certain instances, these can also spread vertically either uh, in utero or during parturition or, um, or through milk, through nursing animals um now when we talk about contagion and the contagious disease what we're implying there is that the disease is capable of spread by direct contact so it it will reproduce within the animal and then in some form of contact or secretion be able to to be passed on but that doesn't mean that it 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 isn't also capable of, of of indirect spread and an example of this might be uh, this young cat here with dermatophytosis, with a fairly classic um, multifocal pattern uh, of alopecia on the back of its head and on, on its ears there. Now, that uh, dermatophytosis is highly contagious to cats, dogs, humans, and other species. Um, and that may be uh, through direct uh, transfer, so um, direct contact with an infected case resulting in dermatophytosis in this other animal here. But this could also be by indirect contact. Um, uh, and that could be through fomites and I've just put down a vet bed there as an example. Now, when we talk about direct contact, we're often um, thinking about about direct physical contact, but we also must understand that this means contact with anything that the animal produces that may um, uh, contain infectious organism. And so this can be uh, aerosols from coughing, sneezing, uh, urine, or any procedures that we're that we're um, carrying out that will result in splashing uh, or aerosols, and then any bodily secretions that the animal um, may produce. Um, and a direct contact implies direct contact with those bodily secretions. But the other thing to think about is where animals are producing something is um, the potential for that to then contaminate the environment, which results in indirect contact. An indirect contact really um, means that, that the, the organism, uh, uh, or at least in one state, is capable of contaminating the environment and surviving under the potentially adverse conditions that, that it's going to find there. And then this results in a, a transmission uh, through fomite or um, it's sometimes also called vehicle carriage although I tend to try and avoid that term because it makes people um, think about cars and vans and, and, and so on um, which obviously are a fomite but, but um, much so much wider than that and hand touch sites and equipment are particularly uh, important here and you can see this is just a photo I took uh, with the sun shining down our corridor in the hospital and you can see the extent of hand touch around the, uh, uh, the, uh, the door there. Um, and again we talked about mechanical carriage uh, on animate surfaces and again uh, hand carriage uh, is, is the most common and important form of spreading organisms uh, around healthcare environments. And this this is why um, hand hygiene is the single biggest thing you can do, or single most effective thing you can do in infection control. And that will be covered in other webinars later on. Now there are a couple of special cases of, of indirect contact. And one is called common source infection. And this is where you wind up um, with contamination of uh, something that is then going to be used or, uh, by a wide range of people and or animals. And I've put some uh, examples down there for you. And one big example that, that, that's reasonably topical at the moment or that's been kind of knocked off the news recently is the, um, the tragedy of blood transfusions, um, where haemophiliacs uh, and other people that require blood transfusions were unwittingly infected with hepatitis virus and HIV um, through contamination of, of blood products. Um, but we can also see this um, uh, particularly with diluted products. And this is, a, this is a very good example that's reasonably common in dogs. Um, and this is a dog here with a, pseudomon- a post-bathing Pseudomonas ferunculosis, And this is commonly associated with Uh, Pseudomonas contamination of water and shampoo products. And this can occur in veterinary practices and grooming parlors as well as as at home. Um, And then the second case is is vector-borne disease. Uh, And obviously this is very, very important um, in in the general transmission uh, of of disease and certain diseases such as the tick-borne diseases, uh, Bartonella and cat scratch, fever through fleas, leishmania through the um, Sandflies and and um, possibly other biting organisms and there's a whole range of viruses that can be transmitted by mosquitoes now these tend to be a little less important when we're talking about control within veterinary practices although it is worth checking animals for flea and tick carriage um, when they come into the um, practice and then taking steps to eliminate that before they join the the main body uh, 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 of, the, of the practice. Um, but other situations, if you're involved in large animal work, stables, rescue centres, uh, etc., then some degree of vector, vector control um, may be advisable. Now, something uh, that is very, very important um, and must be considered in, in disease and infection control are biofilms, and these are extraordinarily common. Um, uh, This is a biofilm that we found in in an ear canal. You can see it has this typically dark brown, green to black and very tenacious, sticky, slimy uh, consistency to it. And biofilms um, are formed by many bacteria. And I'll mention this, uh, some of the bacteria that are good at forming biofilms uh, later on. And they use biofilms to stick to surfaces and this can be Uh, to inanimate surfaces, so you'll see this. um, So if you've ever um, felt the slime around the edge of a food or water bowl, um, or if you've undone your U-bend, looked at your shower head, taps, anything like that, that slime there is a biofilm. We also see biofilms commonly on skin folds into digital skin, uh, plaque, Uh, uh, um, on teeth is a biofilm. And then this is a pseudomonas ear infection. You can see the extent of the biofilm that is adherent to the hairs surrounding the the ear canal there. And biofilms allow bacteria to stick to surfaces. They allow them to, they provide a protected site where they can proliferate uh, and exchange um, Uh, plasmids, which may may include antimicrobial resistance genes, but they also can undergo physiological changes which can make them less susceptible to some antibiotics and um, uh, uh, disinfectants, and therefore considering biofilms when you're looking at treatment and um, hygiene in the environment is is very, very important. Now, we, we, when we're talking about biosecurity and infection control, um, we're mainly looking at nosocomial infections. And nosocomial basically means anything that's healthcare associated. And the and the reality is um, that um, most antimicrobial resistant infections and certainly many other infections are associated with veterinary healthcare. And this is because we're not seeing, by and large, healthy animals Um, they are going to be compromised to some extent. And this also has to be considered with rescue centers where you're having a high turnover of animals who may be coming in unvaccinated, uh, debilitated, and again um, uh, more vulnerable to to infection. And this can be through immunosuppression or or any uh, disease or procedure that is going to break the normal innate barrier between, you know, in the oral cavity, the skin, uh, the gastrointestinal system, the respiratory system or the urinary tract, and then any form of prolonged hospitalization and particularly uh, intensive care unit um, hospitalization, the the, the increased duration of that, is uh, are correlated to the risk of infection. And this can be due to the use of implants because uh, implants break barriers. So they break the skin barrier or break other barriers, but they're also uh, vulnerable to colonization and biofilm formation. Uh, and infection and then we may see problems with non ambulatory animals and again vet visiting animals generally carry more antibiotic resistant organisms and this is as a consequence of their need for uh, antibiotic therapy now I'm not blaming anybody here because some antibiotic therapy is absolutely necessary, but we have to remember that once we use an antibiotic, we are selecting for resistance and the carriage of resistance. And this is why um, infection control and biosecurity is so important um, because of um, the vulnerability of, of the animals that we're caring for. I'm not going to mention a lot about raw food feeding, um, and because uh, in in uh, August uh, last year, Andrew Wales, Joanna Laws, and Robert Davies wrote a very, auth- uh, very well referenced, very well written, um, and a very measured um, uh, article about raw food feeding. And if anybody wants to to um, please do that in more detail, I strongly advise going and having having a read of that. But their conclusion. Um, and this is now, is, is now backed up by all the major veterinary and medical healthcare groups uh, around the world. Is that the uh, is to have some caution over raw food feeding because of the potential for colonization uh, with bacteria that may be of um, direct health significance to the um, to the raw food fed animal, but also then uh, and possibly more importantly. Um, uh, to uh, in contact animals that may be unwell um, and in contact humans. And these are just some organisms of concern here that either um, were mentioned in the article and referenced uh, or where there have been product recalls within, uh, within the last um, six months. So uh, again, I think it's up to individual practices to decide how they want to manage raw food fed uh, animals during hospitalization. Um, but there certainly is the potential for carriage of um, transmissible and antimicrobial resistant uh, bacteria. So I'm now going to uh, look at some uh, bacterial infections. And again, this is not an exhaustive list. And what I've tried to do is pull together bacteria where uh, we either know that there is an important uh, infection control risk or where these are becoming um, organisms of concern. Um, and I, I thought about a number of ways to try and do this to make it a little bit more interesting, a little bit less of a list. Um, so I've got, I've Done it by gram positive and and gram negative. Um, And to start off with the gram positive um, bacteria, um, most of these are commensals, um, but they they can become opportunistic pathogens. And again, this is the reason I went through that nosocomial list, because whilst these organisms are largely completely harmless to a healthy individual, be that an animal or a human, um, and in fact, can become part of the of the normal microbiome in these at-risk healthcare settings, they could be very important um, opportunistic um, pathogens. And the ones we're kind of most familiar with are the coagulase positive staphylococci. So these are, are Things like um, Staphylococcus aureus, which is the type of species in humans. Um, but also remember that horses, farm animals, rabbits, and other species have their own uh, Staph aureus strains. And in dogs and cats, uh, differently, we tend to see um, Staph intermedius. And then there's one called Staph schlefferi. Which is becoming a little bit more prevalent. Um, uh, it's more common in North America, but it's becoming a little bit more commonly recognised uh, in the UK and Europe as well. Now, the MS bit here means methicillin susceptible, um, and the and the MR means methicillin resistant. So these are the ones um, where we have. Uh, more concern because we have fewer treatment options, but it's important to realise that the, um, the, the the more susceptible ones are no less uh, virulent or no have no less infection causing potential than MRSP, MRSA, or MRSS. Um, it's just that they're much easier to um, to treat. And then a special group are the coagulase negative staphylococci. Um, and these comprise a very wide range of different organisms, such as Staph epidermidis, Staph hominis, um, and Staph scurii, and a range of others. And these are much less pathogenic, and they may actually have a role in the microbiome in limiting the proliferation of the more pathogenic coagulase positive staphylococci. But antibiotic resistance among them is very common. So one study done by Vanessa Schmidt when she was doing her PhD at Liverpool looked at uh, Labradors that hadn't visited a vet, so these, uh, other than for a vaccination in over 12 months. So perfectly healthy Labradors, and 44% of them carried a metacillin-resistant coagulase negative staph isolate. So it's very common in, in vet practice the important thing is these are only very rarely associated uh, with infection and where we see this it's usually as a um, contamination of of wounds. Streptococci have received a little less um, uh, attention, resistance is less common, um, but they uh, can be very important. Uh, It's a rare but very important cause of uh, necrotizing fasciitis. So, uh, the top uh, sorry, the top picture here is a dog um, with a staphylococcal s- severe staphylococcal cellulitis following um, orthopedic surgery on an elbow, um, and this picture here is the the early onset of necrotizing streptococcal necrotizing fasciitis resulting from a an a, an intravenous infection associated with an intravenous catheter in an ICU setting. That's obviously a very, very serious uh, infection. And then um, something that's becoming uh, organisms of concern are the enterococci here because they have limited antimicrobial susceptibility. So for example, many fluoroquinolones and cephalosporins are just just won't work against enterococci. And they are normal inhabitants of the gut, but are again are opportunistic pathogens. But through systemic antibiotic exposure, they can quietly acquire lots of antimicrobial resistance, which means that if you then get a secondary infection um, with them, through uh, fecal environmental contamination, they can become very, very hard to treat. And they're a very important uh, emerging um, nosocomial pathogen. So these, um, the, the gram-positive uh, absolute or feculative anaerobes here are a little less common, um, but again, you can get a lot of gut carriage and environmental contamination with them. Infections with them are generally easy to spot. Um, so this is a, a clostridial uh, infection here because of the the sporulation uh, of, the, of the rods there. And in fact, in my own um, hospital, we saw a case of this quite recently in a dog. Uh, that was on quite aggressive immunosuppressive treatment for an autoimmune hemolytic anemia um, that developed some necrosing foot lesions that we, um, we, we uh, identified a clostridial uh, infection uh, with. Uh, C. difficile is a hugely important nosocomial pathogen in human medicine. Um, there are reports of C. difficile carriage uh, and isolation from the gut uh in dogs the the importance of this in um in veterinary health care is, is unclear at the moment but one important problem is that both in the gut and in the environment um c difficile can be can be difficult to um uh, to eliminate and i've just included uh, bacillus anthracis there to emphasize the zoonotic um, uh, potential of this disease And the really important thing is both of these are spore forming organisms Um, and their spores are highly resistant to many disinfectants. And we'll talk about levels of disinfection a bit later on. But just remember, uh, spores are much more resistant than the vegetative uh, bacteria stage. Now, moving on to some of the gram-negative bacteria, uh, and again, most of these are commensals and it's uh, particularly important in uh, carriage in the gastrointestinal tract where they can get exposed to uh, a lot of antibiotics and therefore acquire resistance both vertically and horizontally in the, in the, in the um, gut microbiome. Um, and therefore we can see carriers of these organisms, particularly if they're antibiotic resistant, and then we can get environmental contamination and fomite transmission as well. Um, And again, organisms of concern include uh, ESBL and AMP C carriage or production by some of the Enterobacteriaceae, and ESBL stands for extended spectrum beta-lactamase, um, and these um, bacteria acquire additional beta-lactamase enzymes that are, uh, then confer resistance to most of the penicillins and cephalosporins, but it, they can also co-locate on plasmids with resistance uh, genes conferring resistance to fluoroquinolones and, and other antibiotics as well. Now, at the moment, most Uh, ESBLs are still inhibited by clavulanic acid, so these will be susceptible to amoxiclav. But the big worry is AMP C because most AMP C producers are resistant to clavulanic acid, and that can leave us very few treatment options to to treat um, treat some of these infections once they get established. This was a uh, An AmpC-producing E. coli infection. The the, uh, the the rods there inside this neutrophil. Um, that eventually we we had to kind of treat topically um, in this o tube infection in a cat because we had no uh, appropriate uh, systemic antibiotics that that, that we that we could use. And then Salmonella. Again, not particularly uh, common in small uh, animal practice, but we do see this certainly in farm animals uh, and in horses a little bit more frequently. Uh, I've mentioned about the association with raw food feeding. uh, And then whilst most salmonella really of very little um, clinical concern in uh, dogs and cats, there is a a huge important uh, zoonotic risk there. Uh, some other gram-negative bacteria, so um, Proteus, which um, can be very uh, invasive, um, Proteus, uh, and uh, beginning again organism of concern because we're beginning to see multi-drug resistance, and then um, Pseudomonas, uh, and less commonly a closely related bacteria called Burkholderia cepacia. Uh, um, uh, can contaminate uh, healthcare environments because they just exist anywhere that 's wet, so anywhere where you have standing water, you will find these organisms, and that can include uh, taps and sinks and drains and puddles and ponds um, uh, inappropriately diluted cleaning solutions, shampoos soaps um, we've, we We had a fault some years back in our um, bronchoscope cleaning. Uh, automated cleaning system, um, and that became contaminated with Berkholdia. Um So you name it, they're very, very, um, they can colonize veterinary healthcare environments very, very easily. Again, they can be very invasive. They can um, have limited treatment options. And again, these, these are organisms that are very, very good at forming biofilm. And this is a, a dog that I saw um, with Pemphigus Foliaceus and it was a little bit itchy and it wound up having a buster collar on over the weekend Um, and the uh, rubbing and the compression of the ear flaps and the wetting associated with the buster collar um, by monday morning um, that dog also then had uh, a pseudomonas uh, otitis and this is what the biofilm looks like on cytology so you can see the neutrophils here uh, and they're embedded in this sort of veil-like uh, or net like uh, pattern of slime and mucus there um, Campylobacter again uh, very, very easily transmitted in the fecal oral route or by contamination of water uh, or or foods, um, uh, and again, not a huge. Clinical significance for, for our species, but a very but can cause diarrhea and, is, and a very important zoonotic risk. And then I've mentioned bordetella here because of the uh, importance of aerosol and fomite spread, and again the potential that this has to be a zoonosis for vul, particularly vulnerable individuals that may be elderly or have uh, compromised immunity. And it's worth remembering that the um, the intranasal vaccine does recommend that dogs should be kept away from vulnerable uh, humans for six weeks after vaccination uh, some others so leptospira um, uh, is is a very important uh, consideration um, for infection control biosecurity and barrier nursing because of its very serious uh, contagious and zoonotic risks and again this can be through any form of of, of being um, Uh, contact with wounds or mucous membranes uh, directly or indirectly with urine through splashing. Um, But also uh, it can survive up to three months in uh, contaminated um, uh, water supplies. And then these three are interesting uh, emerging uh, pathogens. They're becoming very important nosocomial pathogens in human medicine. And one of the concerns here is that they are highly invasive. So once they become established in a patient, uh, they can cause a a wide variety of very serious infections and um, and they often display a high level of antimicrobial resistance. And this is um, serratia here, and it has this very distinct red, uh, pigmentation and it's thought to actually to be behind some of the Eucharistic miracles this is um, this is this is a uh, um, uh, bloody bread here that's, that's contaminated and I once in in our staff fridge I have to admit found an abandoned pot of yogurt so that when I lifted the lid off I saw a nice bright red colony of serratia. Uh, in In there, so uh, very important ones to watch for with clinical audit and keep an eye on um, uh, if they if you 're beginning to see cases in your practice um, some other uh, bacteria so i 've I've, um, gone through the it 's a bit difficult and I mean there 's a whole other lecture in how to handle um, mycobacteria cases, but generally um, the the mycobacteria tuberculosis cases. Uh, are highly contagious, and this is through direct contact, and therefore very great care needs to be taken uh, um, with those. The avium complex is usually an environmental source, um, but depending on the case, through um, aerosols or body secretions, there is a contagious potential. So again, great care needs to be taken with those. Whereas some of the other um, rapid growing mycobacteria are environmental and are not normally considered transmissible. And mycoplasmas, again, these are the uh, sort of naked bacteria with, with, um, uh, without a proper cell wall and are therefore largely incapable of, it, of um, surviving outside of, of the animal. And therefore, transmission tends to be by direct contact. Uh, only uh, and I've put a zoonosis question mark here in that some individuals some human individuals sorry and human cell lines um, have become contaminated with mycoplasmas that are normally considered um, uh, animal uh, pathogens so it's just to um, just for consideration there so I'm going to move on to look at fungal infections and the 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 big um, a fungal infection when it comes to worries about infection control, and biosecurity and practices and for rescue centers, cat rescue centers in particular uh, but also farms and stables is dermatophytosis, And this is because it's highly contagious. Um, depends a little bit on the, on the type of dermatophytus. might start again, dermatophytosis that you have. So, um, if it's one of the host-adapted species, so it's the it's the uh, species that normally infects that host, it is highly contagious, um, and this is both through direct contact and and through fomites. And many of these can be um, zoonoses as well. If it's a non-host-adapted um, species, so for example, a Trichophyton mentagrophytes infection, which is normally the rodent or hedgehog ringworm uh, in a dog uh it is less mu- it's not impossible that it, that it's not good, it, that it would get passed on but it is less likely to be um transmissible although another dog cat person could uh get that infection from um the same source and this is um uh a little puss cat here coming into the practice with uh extensive dermatophyte uh, lesions and, and there's some hyphae that we, uh, that we found. And so w- with that animal, very great care needs to be taken in terms of, uh, barrier nursing, isolation, uniforms, and cleaning to ensure that we don't get the spores contaminating the environment because again, they're, um, very, uh, uh, they, they can be quite resistant and persistent. And again, animals that are having, um, They're being clipped for surgery, so they're having the integrity of their skin broken and or uh, are immunosuppressed or vulnerable to infection with these. Now, most other infections are not uh, considered uh, transmissible. Um, uh, One example of one that is would be Spirothrix schenchi. And these cases need to be handled with very great care because it's transmissible and zoonotic and very serious. Now, so far that's not been reported in the UK. We've just reported a case in a cat of a sporothrix infection with, um, from the palida complex, but that's a much less pathogenic um, uh, in- infection and is not normally considered uh, transmissible. Uh, again, Aspergillus might be another one if, tr- if you're treating it and there is aerosolization uh, of the fungus, but it's again, not normally considered um, transmissible. Uh, now one that uh, I have to hold up my hands and say, I was a bit behind the times here, because I still thought E. Kinnikili was a protozoa, but I discovered preparing this lecture that it's been reclassified now as an aberrant uh, single cell uh, parasitic uh, fungus. Uh, and this is very common uh, in rabbits. It's um, potential zoonosis to to people. And and the um, main um, source of infection is environmental spores. And again, these can be very resistant uh, to cleaning and disinfection. So again, anybody who's seeing a lot of rabbits with this condition, rescued rabbits and so on, this needs to be factored into uh, um, infection control programs. Um, So that neatly brings me on to the protozoal infections. Now I won't spend a lot of time on these because they do tend to be um, more rare and sporadic and less important um, for most uh, practices. But uh, again, um, petting zoos, uh, rescue centers, farm animal practices need to be much more aware of these, because certainly because of the, uh, of their uh, zoonotic potential. Um, they're very highly transmissible and contagious. And this is through uh, spores in the environment. And again, these are, are very resistant. And we'll talk about what that means in terms of disinfection uh, a little bit later on. And normally the, it's from an oral fecal route, um, either through direct uh, contamination or through indirect contamination of water Uh, fomites, uh, uncooked foods and so on. Now I'm gonna spend a a little bit of time on viruses because these tend to be uh, the poor uh, relation when it comes to animal infections. And we tend perhaps not to think about viruses in terms of causing disease as much as uh, as human medicine does, apart from a few headline uh, viruses like parvovirus, although the COVID-19 situa- situation may uh, change that a little bit. Um, and what we've got here is a sort of um, family tree uh, of viruses. And what I'm going to do is uh, kind of just go through these. And again, this is not an exhaustive list. I'm not going to go into a huge amount of detail, but just to show you the range of viruses that we, that we see that can potentially um, cause uh, animal disease or, or even zoonotic disease. And so we've certainly got the Rio virus group here and, um, and that's what the rotaviruses belong to. So there's a range of rotaviruses and Rio viruses uh, that can in particular cause um, gastrointestinal disease uh, in animals. And then in the uh, calisivirus group, we have feline calisivirus, rabbit hemorrhagic disease. And this is the group that norovirus also belongs to. And there have been isolated reports of uh, isolating norovirus um, from dogs. Although, again, whether or not that's actually causing disease is is unclear. Uh, FIV and FELV are the uh, obvious important retroviruses. Um, Coronaviruses are obviously hugely in the headlines at the moment Um, but it it is worth pointing out that there are uh, very many Um, coronaviruses that cause a wide range of of diseases, um, particularly respiratory disease, but also gastrointestinal um, uh, disease as well in humans and animals uh, that are not the same as SARS, MERS, and and COVID-19. So again, you know, if you do get involved in conversations about SARS, MERS, and COVID-19, I would echo Alan Radford's comments in the first Uh, webinar, which is try and be specific so you're not frightening people um, when we talk about feline coronavirus, which is obviously the cause of feline enteric coronavirus and FIP. Um, Rabies is, is the classic rhabdo. Uh, virus now again perhaps not so important for for most of us but uh, again uh, people working in uh, wildlife rescue centers that may be handling bats this is very important Um, and then again uh, it is something that was beginning to to uh, become a measure of concern with with um, uh, the concerns about illegal importation of animals and and puppies although again it's kind of been knocked off the uh, the headlines at the moment, but this is something that perhaps um, practices working at the at the front line of, of import, uh, people working as LVIs perhaps need to be aware of. Uh, the ortho mixer viruses, these contain a very wide range of different influenza viruses and then infectious salmon anemia. Paramixer viruses, this is the group that um, measles and mumps and so on in, in humans belong to, and this. Uh, it uh, also comprises the range of distemper viruses affecting uh, animals, parainfluenza influenza viruses, and Newcastle disease in birds. And then parvovirus. Uh, and again, you know, we, we do tend to think about canine parvovirus because it is just so, so, uh, so highly contagious um, uh, and potentially uh, it, it makes them very, very ill and, and, and um, uh, you know, are potentially very, very serious, and certainly any any vet like myself who spent early part part of a career, um, you know, trying to nurse um, animals with uh, dogs with parvovirus back to, um, well, back to life, basically, not just health. Um, you know, I've have, I've have fairly short shrift with the the anti-vax movement. If I may be controversial for a for a moment, but we do see other parvoviruses in cats and other species as well. Then there's a very wide range of papilloma viruses that uh, can infect humans uh, and animals. And again, a huge number of these have been now de- identified infecting cats, horses, cattle. Uh, sorry, dogs, horses, uh, c- cattle, and other, other species. And again, these tend to be very species specific, though. Um, and then we've got a range of adenoviruses that again, in most cases cause uh, respiratory signs, but we do see uh, other other diseases with those as well. And then there are a range of different uh, herpes viruses and particularly um, canine herpes virus is an emerging disease. Um, and then obviously we're much more familiar with feline herpes virus causing um, respiratory, signs predominantly, but also um, keratitis and conjunctivitis in cats, but it can also inf- cause skin infections as well. And then right at the end there, we have a, ve- a very wide range of different uh, pox viruses, um, ORF being the classic um, highly zoonotic um, uh, disease there. So um, when we're thinking about viruses, it's worth thinking about whether they're Uh, enveloped or not. And the enveloped viruses, and I've just picked out the the envelope virus families here, um, are the ones that have some form of lipid type envelope. Um, And this is essential for survival and it does make them um, much more vulnerable. So they're less capable of of environmental um, survival, particularly in uh, adverse conditions. Um, So survival tends to last from minutes to hours to a few days, depending on how protected uh, the environment is, whether there are um, organic material, temperature, and humidity, uh, and so on. And they're generally pretty vulnerable to um, disinfection and cleaning, And which is why at the moment, if I just pick out the coronavirus here, there is such an emphasis on hand hygiene, hand washing, and hand disinfection to try and break the um, trans- route of transmission. Now these ones are called the naked viruses, and and I prefer the term non-enveloped because naked, uh, at least in my mind, tends to imply vulnerability, whereas in fact, the opposite is true. Um, These don't have that lipid envelope. They have a tough protein shell, uh, which means that they're much more stable in the environment, they can survive for much longer, um, and they are much less vulnerable um, to cleaning and disinfection. And this is where we tend to have to use higher levels Uh, of disinfection than for the envelope viruses. And they're generally not um, uh, uh, killed by simple hand sanitization using the 70% ethanol or 70% isopropyl uh, alcohols. Although hand washing, thorough hand cleansing um, is still very important uh, in control. So I mentioned there about levels of disinfection um, and, and from top downwards really, um, the highest level will be sterilization. Now that's not really feasible and, and unless you're preparing surgical instruments or something like that. And the idea is by using uh, chemicals like ethylene oxide or heat, you are just killing all uh, all radiation. You're killing all of the living organisms. So there's nothing left there until you open that that up again. Now, in terms of um, b- both uh, skin surfaces uh, and general practice uh, surfaces, uh, uh, inanimate surfaces, when we talk about high-level disinfection, we mean that we're taking care of um, all viruses. So, that, so oh, sorry, I was meant to say. When we talk about high, intermediate, uh, or medium and low levels of disinfection, this is not to imply uh, the intensity of the cleaning or anything like that. These actually have very specific definitions. So when you see high level def- disinfectant, whoever's producing that should be able to demonstrate that they, their disinfectant has worked to accepted uh, standards, um, to, to achieve that definition. So when we talk about high, we mean all viruses, enveloped and non-enveloped, the vegetative bacteria, these, these are the living uh, bacteria, fungi and protozoa, um, bearing in mind that some, not all, but some spores and cysts are going to be uh, resistant to that because they're designed to survive for long periods in the environment under adverse conditions. When we talk about intermediate level, again, the bacteria should be taken care of. Um, Most viruses, fungi and protozoa, but again, a particular concern here would be some of the more resistant, uh, non-enveloped viruses and remember this is not going to include um, spores and cysts these these will persist despite that level and then low level disinfection really is going to take care of most of the living bacteria uh, and other organisms and enveloped viruses but will have very little effect on everything else and this is the level that you achieve with hand sanitization or simple sanitization of surfaces it's a low level of disinfection Um, And then lastly, I'm just going to use this slide to introduce uh, the concept of clinical audit, because this is something that's going to be uh, covered in in a later webinar in much more detail. Um, But clinical audit is of crucial importance because it allows you to monitor um, uh, nosocomial infections within your practice. It allows you to monitor the sorts of organisms that you're beginning to see. It allows you to monitor uh, antimicrobial resistance um, and this then gives you this is a v- very effective way of giving you an early warning that there is a problem it is much more effective than than you this is passive surveillance it's much generally much more effective um, than, than using active surveillance where it's easy to miss uh, organism you're just keeping a rolling eye on what is happening and then using that to Adapt your clinical um, procedures to, to take care of that. And I've highlighted the SAVSNET here. In fact, Compass runs something similar, uh, but I've highlighted the SAVSnet one um, because they also have the My SAVSnet AMR system, and, the, and that allows you uh, um, to monitor antimicrobial use and then compare this to um, use within your area or similar type of practice. So you can see whether your use is median, higher or lower than it should be. And again, investigate uh, and adapt your uh, procedures and protocols um, uh, as, uh, as necessary. So I'd like to thank you for listening, um, and as I say, we'll, we'll uh, we're happy to take any questions that you can email into the uh, uh, or uh, get uh, email in or, or contact the RCVS knowledge team, and we'll endeavour to answer those as quickly as we can. And then I'd like to. Um, highlight the um, part three of this series, which is going to cover infection control and biosecurity in, in more detail. And again, if you, start, if you understand the risks, the major risks to your practice, then you can use this information um, to develop protocols that are going to be more effective um, in your situation.
0: Thank you very much, Tim. Um, that, that was great. That was brilliant. Thank you so much. Um, and some of those pictures, some of those ears, you could practically smell them. Um, but anyway, now I feel that, I mean, I've learned an awful lot from that. I'm sure everyone else listening has too. And now armed with that information, we can go ahead to plan the practice infection pr- control protocols logically. And as Tim said, the next webinar um, will be about that, about practically um, implementing infection control in the plat- practice scenario and it'll be um, done by um, Liz Branscombe from Davis Referrals, who's got lots of experience of this, so I think it should be really interesting too. Um, And the other thing I'd like to just highlight is our resources. Um, If you look, go on the RCBS Knowledge website Um, and look under QI and infection control, you'll find lots of resources um, that have been donated by various practices and groups of the way they've done their infection control protocols. So have a look at those and it can be helpful in drawing up your own ones. So thank you again, Tim, thank you very much for that. And um, we hope that those those of you on here will, will have had a look at webinar one and we'll go ahead, go on to look at webinar three and four and five. So thanks everyone, bye.